Amen. Y'all can be seated. So how are you guys doing this morning? Good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Um, well, some of you, many of you maybe may already know who I am. My name is Dustin Walker. So if you don't know who I am, that's my name. Here you go. Thank you. Take that. Um, I'm a covenant member here at City Church. I'm glad to be part of City Church. Um, I also have the opportunity to help speak into our community group leaders lives. And if you don't know what that is, I'll be talking a little bit about that later. Um, so I can fill you in. All right. Today, I want to begin with a question. And it's rhetorical, so don't feel obligated <laughs> to raise your hand or stand up or say yes out loud. But I want to begin with a simple question. Have any of you ever been inspired by those motivational posters that you find in different places? Like in middle school classrooms and the waiting area at any typical Jiffy Lube. And you know the ones I'm talking about. The ones where there's a kitten clutching a tree limb by only its claws. And then the transcendent words in Comic Sans font is written at the top, hang in there. You've seen that one? What about the one where there's a team of skydivers and they're all wearing different colored jumpsuits. And they're all coming together forming this beautiful color wheel. And in small or in bold all caps at the bottom it says teamwork. Right above some pithy little saying about how we can do more together than we can alone. Have you all seen those before? Has anyone actually ever been motivated by those things? I mean, have you ever been in the middle of a classroom taking a test and you're thinking, I was just about to give up. I mean, this thing was hard, but then I looked up, and there was that little kitty cat, and if he can hang in there, you know what? I, this guy can too. No, nobody's, nobody says that, and personally, I hate cats, so when I see that poster, I'm just like, let that guy fall down, <laughs> or when you walk from your cubicle at work on your way to the vending machine, you pass the skydiver teamwork poster. I mean, do you stop and just say, you know what, guys? Today, as I'm doing my TPS reports, I'm going to give it my all. Because what I do, it matters. It matters to every one of you. And then you high-five the person next to you. And then you go get your whatchamacallit out of the vending machine. No, nobody does that. Nobody does that. If anything, you, you walk away from these kinds of things thinking, you know, they're just kind of, they fall short. You know, if anything, you at work, you see that poster and you think, my job never requires the kind of death-defying sacrifice and commitment that these guys are showing in this poster, right? For me, those kinds of posters have a way of like showing me like shallowness. They come across as being a little bit irre irre irrelevant. And they don't address a real need that all of us really have. And that's for our souls to attach real meaning to the details of our life. And furthermore, they fall well, well short of helping me or maybe anyone persevere, persevere through real hardship, much less suffering. Well, last week, we began a new series from the book of Second Peter. And our goal in this series is to look at our present dangers through the lens of tomorrow's hope. And so last week, we began by looking at how remembering the beauty of God's character and what he's already accomplished for us through Christ 
influences and shapes our own character. And as we look at this passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at today, we're going to be looking at a very influential passage. It's one that is kind of a segue in between what's already been stated and what Trevor talked about last week and what's coming up, what's going to be preached on the next week or two. You see, in this book, the verses that we're going to look at are kind of a, a, a bridge. They speak about real dangers, real dangers, not like kitty cats hanging from a tree branch kind of danger. But the dangers, like in chapter 1, you hear about forgetting the beauty of God and how that affects your personal holiness. And it also, in chapter 2, makes you vulnerable to falling prey, to believing false teachers and following after false saviors. Today, what I hope to accomplish and hope we can accomplish is to see how objective truth is the grounding force in our faith in Jesus. Much more than cat posters and teams of skydivers. But it reminds us where to find beauty. And it reminds us that we need to also pursue holiness. And it anchors us to something that's credible, something solid and powerful. And it keeps us worshiping a real Savior and not a false one. So if you have a Bible, take it and you can go to 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 16 through 21. The verses will be on the screen, as well as some other verses that you might want to write down and jot down as we go. If you don't have a Bible, we say this every week, but there's a set of Bibles in the back table. If you don't own one, if you've lost yours and you sincerely do not have one, we would love to give you one. So please just go back there at the community groups table and pick one up as you leave today. So let's read 2 Peter 1, 16 through uh, 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter is the one speaking here, and you may already know this, but he was kind of a big deal, okay? People knew him, like for real, even in that day. To say that he had a lot of Christian street street cred was a big understatement. Peter was one of the original 12 disciples. He was part of Jesus' inner circle of disciples. And he became the undeniable leader of the early church. And that's who's speaking here. And he's writing to a group of Christians that are probably in what's now modern day Turkey. And he's concerned for them. Because he's reflecting on his own life. And he knows it's about to come to an end. So he wants them to again hear why. Why they can be sure 
of what they're already believing. Because they have all kinds of internal and external forces of opposition all around them. So what Peter is doing here is he's pointing to his own credibility first. And that's why we can say that we can only be grounded in truth to the degree that we've been eyewitnesses to glory. We can only be grounded in truth to the degree that we've been eyewitnesses to glory. See, Peter here in these verses is kind of debunking an argument that Christians were following some made-up folktale about this Jesus guy. He knew for a fact who Jesus was. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, they had seen something absolutely incredible. They were with Jesus when he removed the veil of his humanity just for a few moments, and he revealed his absolute glory. See, they saw and they heard and they felt the unrestrained glory of God. And we hear about that in the Gospels, and we're going to look at one of the accounts right here at Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. Duh. <laughs> if you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking. And I kind of get the sense like God cut Peter off. He was still just jabbering on. And here, uh, here God speaks from, from a cloud. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. It might make you wonder as you read from Second Peter and we go back to this story. Why it is that Peter chose to use this story, this account to base his authority to say what he's saying in this book. You know, why didn't he use one of the other stories that we hear about in the Gospels? That might sound a little bit more convincing, you know? Like Jesus raising someone from the dead, like Jairus' daughter or Lazarus. Why not when he healed a leper? Why not even seeing the resurrected Jesus? Why not share that story? And I think it's because he saw Jesus in a way that he never saw him ever again before or after. You see, he saw Jesus in his majestic glory. Now, had Peter posted something on Instagram about that event, it would have shut it down. Twitter would have imploded. You know what I mean? Hashtag no filter. That, that's where it would have come from. Like, what's this bright picture here? I'm hurting my eyes. You see, he saw Jesus in a way that he had never seen him before. Peter, James, and, saw, G, uh, Peter, James, and John didn't see Jesus as he was as some Nazarite woodworker. They saw Jesus as he will be. And that's what changed Peter. It's how Peter knew that Jesus was not some talented carpenter turned teacher, but he was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now at this, some of us in the room might be saying, well, that's great for Peter. So what does that have to do with me? He got to see Jesus. 
So in your Debbie Downer voice, you're already saying, well, I didn't get to see Jesus transfigured. Nobody pays me in gum. And <laughs> so what does this have to do with us? But the truth is, is that you can see Jesus' real glory. You just have to look beyond seeing, as a, uh, seeing him as some talented teacher with like really good life lessons. And while we don't get the chance to see Jesus through the radiant light at the top of some mountain, we do get to see him through the windshield of Scripture. And when you see Jesus as your loving Savior, as your coming King, as your Lord, you do see his glory. And Peter again helps us there. In the book of 1 Peter, a different letter, he says, Though you have not seen him, that would be us. You love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, we can see Christ's glory. Now, I know some in the room might be a little bit skeptical, skeptical of this kind of stuff. I mean, and it, it may be for a lot of different reasons, maybe just from the kind of account that I'm talking about, or maybe because you have some kind of incredulity toward Christianity in general. Or maybe you've had bad experiences in the past with church or church people. Maybe you just have a general distrust with organized religion or institutions as a whole. And first of all, I want to say, if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. You know, it takes a lot of guts to come into a church where you are not 100% on board with what the people there believe, and you're willing to come and sit and listen. That makes a big, big uh, impression. So thank you for being here. And if nothing else, I think we can agree that we live in a day and a time where credibility of institutions is tarnished and it's, it's eroded. But hopefully as a church, we can be a little bit more trustworthy than a bunch of cell phone belt clip wearing IRS workers doing the Cupid shuffle. (laughs) Hopefully we can. And secondly, let me encourage you with this. You see, everybody's got assumptions. And if you're skeptical, you probably have your own. But a lot of times our assumptions can lead us to making some accusations about what we believe. Some of which might be true, and some of which might be completely unfounded altogether. So let me encourage you in this. If if you're in the skeptic crowd, turn your assumptions into questions. Instead of making accusations about this or that, ask questions. Because once you start asking questions, those can actually lead you to hearing a legitimate answer. So I challenge you to do that. And you know what? I think that if you listen to a guy like Peter and what he has to say, that's a good place to start. And here's why. You see, Peter was like the big poppy of the capital C church back then. I mean, he really was an important figure. But I think he's one of the most believable people. Oh, watch out. I think Peter is one of the most believable people that we read about in the New Testament. Because, see, he had doubts. He had misguided ambition. He even bailed on Jesus when he needed him most. And I think that points to his credibility. 
Because, you see, later he becomes the overwhelming leader in the early church. He went from being a coward who ran out on Jesus to being a courageous leader. And he even was willing to be beaten, threatened, jailed. And if tradition is true, he was martyred upside down on a cross. You see, if anybody can speak to skeptics, let alone you and I, I think Peter can. Not because his life was perfect, but because largely it wasn't even close. He oscillated from being an epic failure to being a model leader over and over and over again. And if anybody can speak to us about turning our hopelessness into holiness, it's Peter. Because his faith in Christ points not to his glory, but it points to who Jesus is and his glory and his majesty. But you know, Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop about, hey, this is what I saw. I saw Jesus in his unrestrained glory. He keeps going and gives us further proof. You see, our present and future hope are only as strong as the past facts that support it. Our present and future hope are only as strong as the past facts that support it. You see, in the second half of this passage, Peter points back to the validation of prophecies that are more fully confirmed, or some could say it, more sure foundations that even his own eyewitness account could be. You know, anybody could make up a bunch of stories. They could make up any religious experience. Think of people like David Koresh, Joseph Smith. There are others. I could tell you that Jesus spoke to me from my bagel and cream cheese this morning. But just because somebody has a story or has some sort of religious experience, even if they believe it, it doesn't make it true, right? So some people would say, well, he had a religious experience. You know, he could just be making that up. Yes. But Peter points back to something he could not make up like pointing to the 44 or so direct prophecies that were fulfilled about the Messiah in Jesus by people like Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah, among many, many, many others. See, he pointed back to something that had nothing to do with him. And though you and I can agree to disagree with Peter, it becomes harder to deny the words written down for hundreds of years before Christ's birth, that point to Christ's birth, let alone his life and his death. And that ought to be encouraging for us. It's hard to argue that these different people, many of whom lived at different periods in history, were all telling the same story. And they were pointing to the same Savior. See, these things weren't contrived by looking into the darkness with the help of some seer stone and a hat to block out all the light. These things were written through the revelation of God by allowing Him to expose the darkness with His light. And this gives us hope for today and for tomorrow. You see, we can know that the historical facts of the past about Jesus have been confirmed. And if Christ's past is true, 
then his future coming kingdom must also be true. See, it's a lot like storm chasers. Just follow me. Storm chasers, not storm troopers. Sorry for you Star Wars fans. <clears throat> uh, you guys may be familiar with a lot of the tragedy and destruction that's, that's happened over the last few weeks in the Midwest. A series of tornadoes have gone through, and especially in, in places like Oklahoma. Um, but you may have also heard that a group of storm chasers were actually killed in one of those tornadoes. And I, I was unaware of that and saw that in the last week, and um, it kind of caught me by surprise. But I should point out that the people who died, just for the record, they were not the people that were getting paid to take thrill seekers to the edge of a tornado to just kind of post some videos on YouTube and say how cool it is. They were actually researchers. You know, they were scientists. They were, they were doing something, you know, credible. <laughs> they were not just adrenaline junkies. Um, but I saw, as I was hearing about this story, I, I saw a poll question that was being posted on this news program I was watching. And it said this. It said, is the information that they, the storm chasers, gain, is the information that they gain worth the risk of their lives? And I'd like to think, if we ask any real storm chaser, like the real kind, you know, like the ones who have the computers and they're following the data, they would say emphatically, absolutely it's worth it. Why? Why would someone do that? It's because the knowledge that they gain has the potential to save dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people immediately and on down the line. You see, for us, the prophets are like storm chasers. And they had our best interests in mind when they were writing as God directed them. Again, in 1 Peter, Peter mentions this, uh, some other things that are helpful as well. He says in verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you. They were serving us. And these precious and very great promises delivered to us are powerful. The prophets asked questions. They studied. They prayed. All to know and understand what it was God was showing them. Something powerful, but they didn't quite understand all of it. At least not yet. But now we have both things. We've got the eyewitness record, and we also have the prophetic word. And we can look back at both. And that's the kind of objective truth that I'm talking about. The truth that's based on facts, not a bunch of feelings. Feelings are good, but they can betray you. Basing it on facts. And that's the thing that anchors us in hope. And empowers us to live out the gospel. Now, I want to make kind of a caveat. Um, just kind of a separate point. This could honestly be like a whole sermon, I'm sure. Or like you spend a whole afternoon on how we got the Bible and, and how do we know that it's accurate and all that kind of stuff. 
which is very, very interesting, but there's just not enough time. The last couple of verses are very, very uh, interesting. I'll, I'll read them to you. In 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says this, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I just want to make a couple of comments about this, because I feel like it's very, very important that we kind of get this. All right? And this is kind of like an inception moment. Um, it's the Bible talking about the Bible, which is kind of weird. You know, we're going to read the next page and Leonardo DiCaprio is like floating around in an elevator. It's, it's a little bit bizarre. I understand that. But let me say a couple things um, that this is not saying. And then I'll give you a couple things that I think this is saying and encouraging us to do. A couple things that I think this is not saying is that we should worship the Bible. I don't think this gives us license to just worship Scripture itself. We're supposed to worship the God that Scripture points to. That's why I said it's like a windshield. You look through it. You don't look at it. It helps us to see something on the other side. The other thing I think this is not saying is that you can't read and interpret the Bible on your own. In fact, I don't think you'd find anybody in here who wouldn't encourage you to read the Bible on your own. Okay, we want you to read the Bible on your own. That's why we want you to have a Bible. So go pick one up if you don't have one. But what I do think this is saying, and I, what I do think we can say, is that, for one, how we got Scripture is that people were inspired by God to write these words. And the authority of Scripture comes from God, not from the people that wrote it. And, it doesn't, and that's why it doesn't also come from us. Scripture does not, have, does not give us authority over it. We live under the word, not over it. And whenever you read the Bible, and you are trying to seek to understand what it means, your interpretation, the, the part that you were looking at, must connect with the whole of what Scripture is saying. And if those two things do not agree, then there's probably a disconnect there. Furthermore, I think to do that, to do that well, that's why you need the church, and that's why Scripture is best read in community. So for us, a logical outgrowth of that is that we have these things called community groups. Community groups are small groups, small groups of people. Um, they're made up of not just covenant members, but also regular attenders and even guest neighbors who come together, we meet in homes, we share a meal, we talk about real life, what's going on in our lives, and then we have an opportunity to open up Scripture with a set of questions to kind of guide the conversation and try to do one thing, one thing, connect the gospel and allow that to intersect with what's actually going on in our life. We want community groups to be the intersection of the gospel and real life. That's it. And that's why for us, community groups are like the way to get involved in this church. And if you've not been to one, I want to encourage you to go to one. Um, actually, over the summer, we're going to be taking a break from the discussion, but we're going to continue to hang out. 
If you want to meet people in community groups, you are, you are going to have the opportunity to do that this summer. So don't think, well, they're not really meeting this summer. No, this would be the time to go and talk to people, get to know people and hang out. And then uh, it allows you to get plugged in easier. And while I'm saying that, if I have any community group leaders in the room, would, or host homes, because we have community group leaders and people that host them, if there are any people in the room that are either of those, would you mind standing up? If you've done that at all this year, because some people have hosted and some have not, would you guys give these people, men and women, a round of applause? <laughs> We've got one holding a baby in the back. <laughs> Um, I'll tell you what, our community group leaders um, do a lot. Um, they carry, they shoulder a lot of the, the ministry weight at, at City Church. And it means a lot to me personally what these guys do and, and their families and, and how much they sacrifice. And I'm also grateful for the people that host them. We could not do that without being able to meet in homes across the city. So I'm very, very grateful for that. Amen to that. So why do we do com- community? It's so we can read scripture. But it's also because we get the chance to have relationship with other people. And you see, God tends to use the friction that's caused in relationship to actually help us see a better picture of the gospel. And there's nothing that encourages me more than to hear stories of how the mechanics of community group are helping supplement the transformative, real, organic growth in people's lives. And I get to hear bits and pieces of it. Those of y'all that are in community groups, you can think back of, over what's happening or what's happened in the, in the life of your group, and it will blow you away. In fact, most of the time when the community group leaders all get together, that's what we spend most of our time doing, is just standing back in awe and thinking, wow, look at what God's doing. We usually have to cut it off. And just say, we've got to move on. This is awesome. We've been able to see a lot happen. People being freed from addiction of all different kinds. People being liberated from religion, legalism. People being released from their own rebellion and hatred towards God. And just in general, learning how gospel centrality affects everything how that affects the way you relate to other people, how do you conduct your friendships, how you go to work and work for the glory of God, how you operate as a parent and towards your spouse and your marriage. And even in hard times, like we've seen over the last week, where people can come and support one another when someone is going through something really, really rough. That is what it's all about. It's the intersection of gospel and life. Brokenness being healed. Hope being restored. And it's all because there's an actual historical objective truth that we can believe and couple that with the crowd of eyewitnesses to Christ's glory that we can find in community. And as great as all that is, there's still more. Because you see, in the face of real danger, Jesus is our objective truth to give us his light in the midst of our darkness. 
See, if we're not careful, we can have all this, you know, Bible worship after reading these verses. We could stand in awe of the scriptures, and in fact, we probably should, because it's miraculous that they've been preserved and kept for us. But if we miss the Savior that these pages point to, then we miss everything. The Psalms say that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. But Jesus is the word. He's the word made flesh. In the Gospel of John, he says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Christ has come so that we might know how to have a real life. And what we need is not more information from a book. What we need most is a relationship with the God who created us, who loves us, who forgives us, and who died for us. See, this information, this news that we're talking about is what we call the gospel. It's not a set of instructions about how to earn God's approval. But rather, it's a message of how we can receive the approval from God through Christ. And this is why Scripture gives us something much more weighty to cling to than phrases just above a cat clutching a tree limb. In the face of real danger, we can know that Jesus is really the solid structure on which we build our lives. And in fact, he's the one clutching us. And you see, Jesus is also the lamp and the morning star which rises in our hearts. Jesus proclaimed that he is the light of the world. And in him, there's no darkness at all. And because of Jesus, the Holy Spirit searches our hearts, exposing the darkness of our unbelief and replacing it with the knowledge of truth. You see, walking in darkness is dangerous. Look, if I can break my pinky toe by walking through a well-lit living room, just imagine how much damage I can do if it's dark. If you don't believe me, I've got a picture on my cell phone I can gross you out with later. Darkness is dangerous, and Christ has come to expose us to his light. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That is why we need Jesus not just the words about him. It's why we must search. It's why we, why we must study and apply the word. It's also why we need gospel community that supports and encourages this. It's much more than shallow statements in all caps written teamwork, but rather real interdependence based on the light of the gospel. You see, we need others to point the light of the gospel into the dark areas and the blind spots in our lives. We need others to hold that lamp at angles which we cannot in order to expose the darkness in us that we either choose to ignore 
or we can't see ourselves. Simply put, we need the light of Christ and the gospel community that he's created for us through the church. And last but not least, like Peter, we need to find ourselves on that holy mountain. We also need to see Christ's glory. And you say again, I wasn't there. We can't go back to that moment. But though we have not seen the glory that Peter saw, we can look into the scriptures and see another mountain. We can see Jesus between two other figures. Not prophets, but criminals. We can see him there. Put there by our sin. Willingly. On a cross. On a mountain. Called Golgotha. Calvary. And looking at him. We can see and feel his glory. As we hear the echo of God's words. This is my son. With whom I am well pleased. And because Jesus took our place. We can know the same approval that God had for his own son is equally offered and available to each one of us. Because God is pleased in Jesus, he can also be pleased in you. He adopts you as his son, as his daughter, chooses to love you so that he can be well pleased in you, all because of Christ. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says this. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. Today, will you let the echo of the whispers of God's glory from his word turn your ear to the loud singing of his love and pleasure over you. My hope is that we would allow the light of the gospel to pierce the darkness in our hearts even right now. Allow the light of, the, light of Christ to drive away our doubts and allow others into our life who reflect the gospel back to us and us to them, so that together we also will be eyewitnesses to his glory as the morning star rises in our hearts. Let's pray. As you bow your head and close your eyes, I ask the, the band to come back up here as they get ready to lead us in song again. We're going to leave this verse up just for another couple moments. And so after I pray, I'm going to ask that you kind of read over it again. And I want you to ask yourself, is that objective truth the one that's directing my heart right now? That's it. And allow the answer to that question be that God finds his pleasure in you only through Jesus. And believe that today. And if you've never believed that for yourself, 
then maybe talk to someone today. You've got cards in your seat. There are people that probably invited you today or you've spoken to already today that would be more than willing to have a conversation about what that means. And you can always fill that card out and someone will get back to you if you have questions. Turn those assumptions into questions and start asking. So let me pray for us today. God, thank you for your pleasure in Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Thank you that we have a legitimate truth that we can believe. One that's real. Not made up. Not a bunch of fog and smoke and mirrors. Something that's real. Substantial. And I pray that today we would hear your words like Peter, James, and John heard them. Speak loudly to our hearts. And let us hear you sing over us this morning. It's in your name I pray.